You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I have a question for you. What will your legacy be? Will you be remembered for your commitment to liberty? Or will you waver at the sight of adversity? Will you hold the line and stand for truth no matter how popular it may be? Or will you bend to peer pressure? Will you let your faults and failures define your story? Or will you overcome your challenges and push forward in pursuit of something greater? Will you stand firm and be a champion of freedom? Or will you let it be said that you did nothing? Throughout our history, ordinary people have risen to the occasion to do extraordinary things in the name of liberty. These people were not perfect, far from it. Yet in spite of their faults and failures, they never looked back. No matter how many times they fell, they continue to get back up. This is their legacy. Because of their commitment, our world is more free. Each and every one of us has the power to follow in their footsteps. It's up to us to pick up that torch. George Washington was the father of this country, but George Wythe was the godfather of this country. A teacher, a founder, a mentor, a lawyer, a statesman, and so much more. George Wythe directly or indirectly played one of the most active roles and important roles in the founding era. Nearly every reliable institution in American society today was influenced or altered by Wythe in one way or another. This man influenced much of the political climate of his day, altered the state of American education, and was the teacher and mentor of dozens of well-known founding fathers. He served as the inspiration for many key figures who serve as inspiration to many of us today. The passion and the conviction that many in that time possessed for the ideas of liberty can be credited to his effective teaching and strong moral example. He mentored future presidents, senators, Supreme Court justices, and a Speaker of the House. 
With a resume like that, it is somewhat surprising that the vast majority of people have never heard of him. He isn't studied much in school. There aren't any plays or musicals written about him. We don't put him on our money. And as far as I know, there isn't a George With miniseries coming out on HBO anytime soon. No matter why he failed to obtain an immortal legacy like that of Washington, Jefferson, and Franklin, he certainly should be remembered in the same vein. The American Revolution may well still have happened without him, but the final result would likely look very different. With was the founding mentor that can still teach us valuable lessons to this day. George Wythe was believed to be born in late 1726 in Elizabeth City County, Virginia. Although the exact date of his birth is unknown, he grew up in the Commonwealth and fell in love with Virginia. He rarely left its boundaries, even into adulthood. Like many in the 18th century, death was familiar to George from a young age. In 1729, his father, Thomas III, passed away, and George and his siblings were left to be raised by their mother, Margaret. Growing up without a father figure was difficult for George, but certainly not impossible. His mother was incredibly educated, especially for the time, and she helped her son grow in knowledge and intrigue. However, the vast majority of George's education came from his own willpower. The complications of his childhood strengthened him and built his character and resilience. He started to study languages such as Latin and Greek, philosophy, law, and politics. The full extent of his education may never truly be known, as many records of this information were either not kept or destroyed. However, it is certain that his personal pursuit of knowledge and virtue is what primarily contributed to forging him into the founding father that he would become. As he entered into his teenage years, George Wythe got his first taste for a legal career. At 15, he was set to join his uncle, Stephen Dewey, for a law apprenticeship. Dewey was a very well-known and prominent attorney in Virginia. He served as King's Attorney in 1740 for Charles City County. He was also very active in local politics. Yet, despite the prominence and prestige of George's uncle, his apprenticeship was not exactly time well spent. Dewey seemed to be less concerned with training and educating George in the law and how to be a good attorney, and more interested in having George be his own personal servant. Dewey was not kind to his nephew and didn't provide him with many skills that are needed in order to make a good lawyer. That's not to say With did not receive any training whatsoever, but he was under the impression that Dewey was happier to have free labor than he was teaching him proper skills. Fortunately, With was more capable than his uncle may have realized. He would later reflect on his apprenticeship with his uncle as an unpleasant experience, but it almost certainly taught him a valuable lesson that would stick with him throughout his life. If George considered Stephen Dewey to be an unpleasant mentor, more selfishly concerned with short-term benefits, then George would be the opposite. 
when he gets the opportunity to be in the same position as his uncle, he'll be the mentor that he never had. After his apprenticeship, he returned home and spent a considerable amount of time teaching himself the law. Committed to practicing law, he sought admission to the Virginia Bar. He passed and was admitted to the practice in June of 1746. In his first legal job, he became a partner with an older man named Zachary Lewis. This was significant in Wythe's life because this was how he met his first wife, Anne, who was also Lewis's daughter. They wedded in December of 1747. But this was not meant to be a fairy tale ending for Wythe, it would appear. Anne died less than one year later, in August of 1748. This would be a watershed moment for a young George, as in his grief, he moved to Williamsburg, Virginia, and fully committed himself to his career for the foreseeable future. Over the next 15 years or so, Wythe became not just a prominent lawyer, but a politician as well. He established his private legal practice in Williamsburg, serving as a clerk in two committees in the House of Burgesses, and briefly served as King's Attorney General. His legislative career started in 1754 when he replaced a late Burgess until the end of the 1755 session. While he didn't have much political authority at the time, he established himself and paved the way for him to return to the House of Burgesses in 1760. The whole time he served in the house, his law practice remained open. It was this that allowed him to gain a very specific reputation, an honest lawyer. With had a strong belief in personal virtue, responsibility, and individualism. Reverend Lee Massey called him, quote, the only honest lawyer I ever knew. Coming from a member of the religious community, that was somewhat high praise. In those days especially, clergymen and religious leaders would look down upon lawyers, believing that they would sell their soul if it meant winning a case. This stereotype was one that drove John Adams to overcome it. Keeping one's personal integrity and adhering to the truth was all too easy for With, and he became a strong moral example for up-and-coming members of Virginian society. As it would turn out, one of those members was about to knock on his door. In 1762, a young 19-year-old student at the College of William and Mary named Thomas Jefferson was introduced to George Wythe by William Small, a professor at the college. Small had been instructing the young Jefferson in natural law and philosophy and recognized extraordinary talent in the boy. Wythe also recognized it and agreed to take him on as his legal apprentice. Now, George Wythe had the opportunity to shape a young man in the way that his uncle never cared to. And it could not have been a more consequential man at that. Wythe and Small would have Jefferson over for their Friday night dinner parties. Jefferson became nearly inseparable with these brilliant men, and they would frequently discuss politics, current events, philosophy, and culture together. While it was only technically a legal apprenticeship, the result was so much more impactful than that. Arguably, no one in Jefferson's early life had as great of an impact on his beliefs and convictions as did George Wythe. What's more than that, this would turn out to be Jefferson's first founding friendship. 
Both men would go on to play crucial roles in forming a new nation. However, their friendship would prove to last their entire lives. Few people did Thomas Jefferson respect more than with, too. He would write that, quote, He was my ancient master, my earliest and best friend, and to him I am indebted for first impressions, which have had the most salutary influence on the course of my life. Toward the end of Jefferson's life, well after Witha died, he praised his legacy, stating that, quote, No man had ever left behind him a character more venerated than George Wythe. His virtue was of the purest tint, his integrity inflexible, and his justice exact. A more disinterested person never lived. And his unaffected modesty and suavity of manners endeared him to everyone. Again, Wythe's integrity just as much defined him after his death as it did when he was called an honest lawyer by a reverend in his early career. With how much of an emphasis Wythe placed on public and private virtue, and how influential he was to many founders, it can be argued that perhaps only George Washington had a greater impact on America's moral compass than did George Wythe. Around the same time he was mentoring a young Thomas Jefferson, Wythe became increasingly vocal and animated against British oppression. In 1765, as the Stamp Act passed Parliament, Wythe took a very aggressive stance against it. It imposed a direct tax upon the colonists to pay off the war debts. Wythe's opposition to the act gave him the reputation of a patriot and a radical. This was yet another instance of Wythe's influence on Thomas Jefferson. Discussing political philosophy around the dinner table is all well and good, but meaningless without action. Wythe's political courage to speak out against oppression would inspire Jefferson to do much of the same throughout his life. It also made him very popular locally, and he was elected mayor of Williamsburg in 1768. For Wythe, independence was increasingly obvious. As the 1760s turned into the 1770s, George doubled down on his so-called radical positions. This raised his notoriety far beyond Williamsburg. In fact, at this time, Thomas Jefferson and George Wythe were becoming closer as colleagues than they were as teacher and student. They rose through the political ranks together, standing side by side in their fight against British oppression. But what was more than that, Wythe was helping Jefferson define America's soul, its guiding compass. It was one thing to be against the British, but what was it that they were actually hoping to achieve? Liberty, and nothing less than that. In the early 1770s, that meant getting the mother country to respect their rights. But after the events of the Boston Tea Party, there was starting to be a discussion about taking a more radical approach. In 1774 and 1775 in Virginia, two conventions took place to discuss Virginia's future relationship with Great Britain. The royal governor of Virginia, Lord Dunmore, had repeatedly dissolved the House of Burgesses at the slightest hint of conversations surrounding this subject. The official legislative body was not reliable for this reason, so representatives of the colony met in private. The Second Virginia Convention took place in March 1775 at St. John's Church. 
Notable representatives included George Washington, Richard Henry Lee, Thomas Jefferson, Patrick Henry, and yes, George Wythe. It was at this convention that Patrick Henry delivered his Liberty or Death speech, which became a battle cry for all patriots in the years to come. The Second Continental Congress was also preparing to convene in Philadelphia around this time, and Virginia selected its delegates during this convention. Little did they know, less than one month later, shots would ring out in Lexington and Concord, Massachusetts, and the American Revolution would begin. Wythe's pupil, Thomas Jefferson, was elected to join the Virginia delegation in Congress at Philadelphia. Certainly, this was a moment of pride for this mentor-turned-colleague. He himself remained in Virginia as the Congress kicked off. However, as the British threat in Massachusetts spread to the rest of the colonies, it was apparent that this would not be a mere regional skirmish. America was rather about to engage in an all-out war with the most powerful empire in history. As was the case, they required a strong, experienced military commander to lead the charge and maintain morale. After much debate and discussion, it was decided that Colonel George Washington, who was a Virginia delegate in Congress at the time, would become commander-in-chief. With an opening now in the Virginia delegation, George Wythe was finally selected to go to Congress. By September 1775, he moved to Philadelphia with his second wife, Elizabeth, and once again reunited with his star pupil, Thomas Jefferson. Upon his arrival, he earned the respect of many notable delegates from the North and South. He quickly became friends with the Adams of Massachusetts, that is to say, John and Samuel. John Adams struggled to make friends with anyone at the Congress, especially from Virginia and the South, but Wythe was different. His strong character and sincerity shined through. They likely related to each other on some level, as both were lawyers committed to bringing virtue and integrity to the profession when there was none. He was not quick to speak up, but people listened attentively when he did. Benjamin Rush of Pennsylvania noted that Wythe seldom spoke in Congress, but when he did, his speeches were sensible, correct, and pertinent. I have seldom known of a man who possesses more modesty or of a dove-like simplicity and gentleness of manner. He carried an atmosphere with him, almost as if he were the elder of Congress, bestowing wisdom to all who would listen. And listen, they did. He once asked Congress, quote, In what character shall we treat? As subjects of Great Britain? As rebels? Why should we be so fond of calling ourselves dutiful subjects? We must declare ourselves free people. His support for independence carried weight. With supported the resolution to declare independence, but he would not be present for the final vote on July 2nd. In late June, he was pulled back to his home of Virginia to assist in the creation of their constitution. Thomas Jefferson stayed in Philadelphia and continued to draft the Declaration of Independence at this time. But Jefferson also drafted a state constitution for Virginia around the same time. Wythe went home to advocate for his pupil's draft upon arrival. 
Furthermore, he and George Mason, who was attending the convention in Virginia as well, worked together in a committee to design the state's seal. The seal of Virginia that With helped to create is still in use to this day. Much of Jefferson's drafted constitution did not make the cut. What did make it was mostly included in the preamble. One notable section that was included in Jefferson's draft was a strong prohibition of enslavement for anyone entering the state after ratification. It read, quote, No person hereafter coming into this country shall be held within the same in slavery under any pretext whatever. Jefferson's position against slavery was one that With shared, and he became more engulfed by the issue as he got older. As summer went on, the word was spreading of what Congress had done in Philadelphia. The vote for independence was on July 2nd, and the Declaration was approved on July 4th. Likewise, the Virginia Constitutional Convention was beginning to wrap up. One month later, in August of 1776, there was a formal signing of the document. But With was not there for it. He returned to Philadelphia in the fall, but there is reasonable doubt as to whether he actually signed the document. Indeed, his name is a fact on it. However, it's unclear if he is the one who actually placed it there. This confusion stems from the fact that he typically signed his signature as G. With. Yet, on the document, his whole name is stated as George With. If it wasn't him personally, it is likely that he authorized a clerk to sign his name for him in his absence. Regardless, his name was included with his approval, as With was one of the earliest supporters of independence. Once he returned to Philadelphia, he did not stay for very long. He and Jefferson would leave the city to return to the Virginia legislature, now the House of Delegates, to begin revising and codifying state laws. In 1777, With became the Speaker of the House of Delegates and worked tirelessly with Jefferson to implement, among other things, his Statute for Religious Liberty. Their vision for the state would, of course, not entirely be implemented during his tenure as Speaker, or tenure in the House for that matter. With only served as Speaker for one year, and Jefferson became Governor of the state in 1779. Still, the steps that they took together would go on to preserve many liberties in the state and would serve as an example for the country years later. With's next stage in life is where he exhibited perhaps his greatest influence behind his mentorship of Thomas Jefferson. After his star pupil became governor of Virginia, Jefferson, among others, appointed him as the chair of law at the College of William and Mary. Jefferson was also serving on the Board of Visitors at the college at the time. This made With the first law professor in America, and only second in the entire English-speaking world. It would be during his time in this position that he would get to know and instruct many of the great statesmen of the founding generation and immediately afterward. His students included future President James Monroe future Chief Justice John Marshall, future Senator and Speaker of the House Henry Clay, future Secretary of State Edmund Randolph, and future Virginia Judge Spencer Roan, among others. In addition to the sheer volume of founders that with instructed, in one form or another, he radically altered how law education was taught. Many practices and theories now thought of as commonplace 
originated with With's tenure as a law professor. Among the most impactful practices, he introduced the use of mock trials and mock Congress, or state legislatures. These simulations gave law students a real, practical understanding of how the legal and legislative process worked and prepared them for careers more than likely anything else before it did. Of course, in addition to this, he also lectured semi-weekly and assigned his students many treatises that had great influence over the founding generation. As he entered his elder years, he played one of the most pivotal roles in the solidification of the Constitution. Virginia was perhaps the most crucial state needed to ratify the document. Without the biggest and most influential state supporting it, even if it passed, it couldn't possibly command the authority that it needed. This also happened to be where the most vocal anti-federalists came from. Patrick Henry led the charge against the Constitution at the Virginia Ratifying Convention. George Mason refused to sign the document because it concentrated the federal government's authority too much and lacked a Bill of Rights. With fully understood the issues with the new Constitution and agreed with many of them himself, but he also believed that the country would not last under the Articles of Confederation and it certainly wouldn't be able to protect the liberties of the people. With helped to come up with a compromise that wouldn't satisfy every anti-federalist, but enough to pass. Essentially, if the Constitution were to be ratified at that moment, With agreed to immediately work on and advocate for a Bill of Rights to amend it. He would model it after the state's own Bill of Rights. Patrick Henry was left unimpressed and maintained his suspicion of the new federal constitution. However, it was an argument that convinced just enough delegates to ratify it. Barely. On June 7, 1788, Virginia ratified the constitution with a vote of 89 to 79. Keeping to his word, he began to help craft a Bill of Rights shortly afterward. In 1789, With stepped down from his position at William & Mary as a law professor. The Virginia High Court of Chancery was moving to Richmond. Since With served as a judge on this court and had done so since it was created, he had to move with it. Despite many opportunities to propel him even further in his career to serve on a federal court, he was happy where he was. Perhaps he was getting too old, or perhaps he felt more deserving people should fill those seats. Nonetheless, With remained in Richmond. As he entered into a semi-retirement, he never fully stopped working, as he sat on his judicial seat until his death, his interests refocused on the issue of slavery. With, like many in his day in Virginian society, owned his share of slaves. 
It was never to the extent like the truly wealthy slave-owning founders, such as Jefferson or Washington, but he did own them regardless. Also, like others in his day, he struggled with the realities of slavery while also advocating for abolition. Throughout his life, he condemned slavery and supported what he referred to as simple abolition, or emancipation without any caveats. There were several factors in those days that led abolitionists to propose some radically different solutions to ending slavery. With solution was probably the closest to what eventually came to pass several decades later. Also, unlike many in his day, he believed in the total equality of the white and black races. There was a lot of junk science at the time that suggested that blacks were inferior to whites, and thus could never be true equals. There were, of course, those who held on to this theory as a reason to maintain slavery. Others who supported emancipation believed that blacks and whites were equals in rights, but in no other way. This was a difficult theory to overcome in Southern society, leading even many well-meaning white people unable to refute it. George Wythe was not one of them. He sought out to dispel this notion in an attempt to cut through societal prejudices. He began to teach some of his slaves to read and write, demonstrating that their intellect was just as capable as any white kid with the same opportunities. Some of Wythe's students, astonished, asked in a letter, Would you believe it? That he has begun to teach Jimmy, his servant, to write. As he continued, he praised his teacher with respect, stating, Nevertheless, it is true, and it is only one more example of that benignity granted by heaven to the minds of a few. It would take some time, but Virginia and the rest of the country would find themselves coming to terms with the fact that Wythe was, in fact, correct. In public life, he took stands against slavery as well. In fact, in what would be his final court case, he would rule in favor of a slave suing for her freedom. Jackie Wright was a slave who had sued her master for her freedom in Hudgens v. Wright. It was based on a legal loophole in Virginia. Since she had Indian heritage in her and no DNA or ancestral evidence to point otherwise, she argued that, by law, she had to be set free. Indian slavery was abolished almost a hundred years prior, and even earlier slave laws dictated that offspring born on Virginia soil must take the status of their mother to determine their freedom. She claimed to descend from an Indian woman on her mother's side. George Wythe agreed, and ruled that Wright and her family must be set free at once. This was a big deal for a handful of reasons. It wasn't the first time a slave won their freedom in court, but what happened in Virginia was a telltale sign of the future of the institution. More importantly, a slave being properly represented in court getting a fair trial in the South was a major moment. It set a legal precedent that slaves are, in fact, people and have certain rights even if those rights aren't respected by the law. They weren't property, but human beings. This and other similar cases would go on to inspire a textualist movement that sought to overturn slavery using the Constitution and the law as it existed. Ultimately, this method would not succeed, at least not entirely. But it continued to motivate abolitionists, 
to fight for an anti-slavery constitution until it was officially abolished with the 13th Amendment. Indeed, this increasingly became the dominating issue in his twilight years. It's possible it may have even been the reason for his death. As he continued to speak out publicly and privately, not just for emancipation, but for total equality, he was increasingly burdened morally by the state of his own slaves. The fact that he preached for equality and liberation, but did not practice it in his own house, greatly haunted him. As stated in prior episodes, there are many complex reasons that those who advocated for abolition did not emancipate their own slaves. Part of it was financial impracticality. Under state law, freed black slaves were expected to be financially provided for by their former masters should they emancipate. Considering many Tidewater Virginians had hundreds of slaves while sinking into debt, that option wasn't very realistic. With, however, only had a few dozen, and he decided that he could make it work. He began the process of manumitting his slaves until he washed his hands of the institution entirely in his own personal life. But he went further than that. He acknowledged their humanity in the process, practicing what he preached not only in regards to liberation, but equality. After he freed one slave, Linda Brodnax, she decided to remain with With as a free woman with her believed-to-be husband, Benjamin, yet another freed slave. Michael Brown was a slave boy with also freed who remained with him as Brown became his student. With not only treated them with humanity, but he also paid Linda to work as a free service woman, cooking and tending to other household duties. In fact, he demanded any guest to do the same and pay her if they expected to be served by her. George took a particular liking to Michael Brown and saw great potential in the bright young boy. He likely viewed Brown as his definitive proof in Southern society that black people possess no disparity in intelligence simply because of their race, further proving that they were equal to whites. With taught Brown literacy, Latin, Greek, and natural sciences, among other things. One could easily argue that Brown was more educated than an average white hill country Virginian in that day. As he grew in age, George Wythe included Michael Brown, Linda Brodnax, and Benjamin in his will, so they were cared for after he was gone. Linda and Benjamin were given parts of his estate, and Thomas Jefferson agreed to continue teaching Brown after Wythe's death. On the occasion that both Benjamin and Linda died, their inheritance would entirely go to Michael Brown. To the dismay of George Wythe's sister's nephew, George Wythe Sweeney, this meant some of his inheritance. This decision was made easier for Wythe given the fact that Sweeney was a drunken gambler and thief who proceeded to disrespect his goodwill and steal books from him so that Sweeney could fund his own addictions. However, if all of the individuals freshly written into Wythe's will were to die early before Sweeney, he would receive his full inheritance. On May 25th, 1806, a Sunday morning, Wythe had coffee prepared and enjoyed it with Brown and Brodnecks. Nothing seemed out of the ordinary. Suddenly, the three became violently ill. George Wythe was 80 at the time, but he was in great health for his age. No signs of deterioration showed outside of the average 80-year-old. 
Furthermore, Bradnex was younger than With, and Brown was still youthful. No natural reason could explain why the three had suddenly been thrown into sickly agony. One week later, Michael Brown could not recover and died on June 1, 1806. Upon his death, George With, still violently ill, discovered that there were three blank checks with his signature that he had never signed. He discovered that Sweeney had been forging With's name so that he could get more money to fuel his addictions further. He then deduced that it was Sweeney who poisoned them and immediately had him written out of his will entirely before he died. On June 8th, George With, the beloved and admired founding father, laid in bed and spoke out one thing. I am murdered. He died shortly afterward. Sweeney was arrested on the 18th, being charged with murder. His trial took place in September. Unfortunately for him, Linda Brodnick survived the poisoning and claimed that she witnessed him put something suspicious in the coffee on May 25th before everyone drank it. He almost certainly committed these murders. Yet, because blacks were not permitted to testify against whites at the time, Linda's claim could not be used as evidence. Although he did not get the inheritance, George With Sweeney was found not guilty on September 8th. He got away with murder because Virginia did not view blacks equal to whites, like George With did, silencing their strongest evidence. With died as he lived, committed to the ideas of liberty, no matter the cost. His mentorship created some of the brightest minds of the founding generation. His position on slavery likely had the greatest influence over future presidents, Supreme Court justices, senators, and speakers of the House. Indeed, it is likely that Thomas Jefferson himself came to his own conclusions about the evils of slavery at least as passionately as he did, due to the teachings of With. Even in the face of death, he didn't back down from what he knew to be right and just. We can't all be the next Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin, or George Washington. Circumstances alone make it very difficult to compete with such titanic figures. However, everyone has the power to be the next George With to be the teacher and mentor that you yourself may never have had, to instruct a new generation about the virtue of liberty. If each of us is willing to take on that challenge, the next titan of liberty may be closer to us than anyone realizes. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for tuning in to the season finale of Profiles in Liberty. I had so much fun making this season for you and so much fun researching and, and learning the stories with you in a lot of context uh, about these heroes of liberty. And in this week's episode with George With in particular, I think this is the individual that if you can't be the next Thomas Jefferson, if you can't be the next John Adams or Benjamin Franklin or George Washington or whoever it is, everyone has the power to be the next George With. So if you can't do any of that, at least strive to be like him. As always, please be sure to follow me on Twitter at Caleb Franz. Be sure to follow uh, We Are Libertarians on Twitter at We, the letter R, 
Libertarians. And now, I have a special announcement for you. We are going to be releasing Season 2 on February 3rd, 2022, so be ready for that. It's going to be a fun season, and you can get all of the updates on Season 2 and a whole slew of other stories and information on our Substack newsletter. So please be sure to subscribe to our Substack so that way you can get all of the latest updates directly to your inbox. It has been such a pleasure to have you along with me on this journey through history, and I will see you again in February for Season 2. This has been Caleb Franz with Profiles in Liberty.